Good morning, food lovers everywhere. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going to give you um, a chance to listen to two people, um, one sweet and the other one, well, well, we don't want to say spicy, we don't want to say... What do, what do we want to say? I don't, I don't know. We, I, thought, <laughs> I thought we were saying sweet, sweetie and spicy, Okay, what do, I, what do I know anyway? Who, who's Sweet first? and spicy. Starting out, um, we're going to be talking to uh, Laura Sorkin, who is run amok maple syrup, and you can't get sweeter than that. But she also has honey. Yes, uh, and, uh, and they're, and they're putting, great I'm products. Putting, I'm putting it on my cereal almost every morning. Exactly. Well, let's listen to Laura. Yes, we're going to be talking to Laura Sorkin from Runamuck Maple, um, the the company that she founded and runs. Um, tell us how you came to do this, Laura. Obviously, you're where you can get a lot of really good maple syrup, aka Vermont, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so my husband and I started sugaring our property in 2009 in Vermont. What's that recently? Uh, sugar. Huh? Sugar is a, a verb, an adjective, and a noun. If you, I always sure, like to yeah. get the term straight for people. Like when you say you're sugaring, it means you're making maple syrup. Right. So um, around 2009, we started sugaring, and we we started pretty large, like right away. We did about 27,000 taps on our property, which is was quite oh, really? big for the time. Um, wow. And. Right now, we're up to 86,000 on our property, plus an additional 20,000 on a different property. So we have 100,000 taps that we uh, do every single really year. I mean, are those individual trees? Yes, those are individual trees. If the tree is How very you... large, you can put two taps in it. But generally speaking, it's it's one tap. Now, what did you do before? I mean, this is not something, did you wake up in the morning and say, I want to be a sugar daddy? <laughs> well, um, we moved to Vermont to start an organic vegetable farm, and we okay, did that from right. 2000 um, on. And we just found it really difficult um, to make a go of it financially. Most of our property is actually steeply sloped forest with a really good sugar bush. There's another term oh. for you. Um, yeah. So that is refers to like um, a forest that's really dense with sugar maples and red maples. Um, so a lot of our property is excellent for producing maple syrup. So we switched to maple syrup in 2009, um, and we started selling on the bulk market for uh, six years or so, which means we sold to other packers who would bottle it up and, and sell it. And around 2016, we decided to start our own retail line, but since there's so much uh, maple syrup available recently, we, we thought we might do some things to distinguish ourselves. Um, so I have a, a background in the culinary arts. I went to the French Culinary Institute in New York, which I think is now the International Culinary Institute, and some time in, in restaurants. Um, and so we, we started applying a little bit more gourmet attitude towards maple syrup and doing barrel aging and infusing. Um, we smoked it and found that maple syrup is really conducive to a lot of different flavors. It takes on a lot of spices and herbs just, just beautifully. Oh, um, so it does. Barrel I mean, had, your product sorry. is just amazing. And, and it's, um, uh, well, Peter's actually consumed most of it, and he loves it. <laughs> and uh, he has lost a bunch of weight. And so we're, we're trying to figure out ways to get him to put weight back on and, and <laughs> Lo and behold, there's the, the maple syrup in the well, honey. Then what I recommend is some whiskey barrel aged on some butter pecan ice cream. That's a very good start. Ooh, um, ooh, ooh. Yeah. Also, okay, maple well. pudding is probably one of the highest callings for maple syrup, and we have a recipe uh-huh. for that on our website. Um, so one of those. Yeah, you have a lot of recipes on your website, and you have you have um, you sent a little uh, brochure and some mm-hmm. recipe cards. Um, I, I mean, I'm amazed at how ingenious you are about different ways of pre- preparing and um, oh, thank you. And doing, using 
Um, the, well, the, the, what the we're trying syrup. to do is get people to think beyond pancakes um, and use yes, maple right. syrup as an everyday sweetener um, the way they would for honey um, or agave or other, other sweeteners that are on the market. Maple syrup is very rich in flavor, um, and there's a lot of potential for it, particularly in cocktails. We really, we really see a lot of potential in cocktails. And, in fact, we, we also have a, a pre-made cocktail syrup. Um, we have a maple old-fashioned. We have a, a ginger maple mule because we just find it's, it's fantastic in cocktails. Um, but also for pastries and also in savory dishes. Um, not yeah, tell us about the savory. I mean, that's, that's unusual, isn't it? Um, it's not as unusual as it used to be. You'll find, uh, you know the chef Yotam Otolenghi? He's, he's um, a London-based chef. He oh, yes, uses yeah, maple yeah. syrup quite a bit. Um, and again, like you're not trying to make everything super sweet. It's merely just, you think of it as like a seasoning, um, the way you would, you know, when you put salt on things, you don't necessarily want the dish to taste Yeah, salty. the same with lemon juice. Yeah, citrus yeah, juice, yeah, you want it to accent the flavors that are there. And and my approach is the same with, with maple syrup. You just use a little bit, and that sugar actually brings out the other flavors in the dish. So there's some very easy things like um, roasted vegetables. You can use it as a glaze sort of towards the end of roasting. You don't want to put it on too early. Um, a very traditional one that everybody loves in New England is to use maple syrup on um, acorn squash when you bake yes, acorn yes, squash. Yes, Yeah. But then other things... And butternut know, squash, too. Oh, so good. So good. <laughs> so there's other things that, um, you know, that our products, like the smoked maple syrup, a lot of people love that on salmon. I would mix that maybe okay. with a little bit of, of Dijon mustard and use it as a glaze uh, for a boiled salmon. It's very good. You know, um, we, don't, a, we don't have any more of that left, and I didn't use it on salmon. I should have. <laughs> oh, no. Well, we can send you some more. <laughs> um, and then so other great. things, like our Macroot, um, which is a, a Thai lime leaf. It's got the, the maple syrup is very floral tasting. It's very tropical, like that on coconut ice cream is unbelievable. But it's also really good um, in Thai dishes. You know, in a lot of Thai dishes, they'll add palm sugar or a little bit of, of a sweetener to it. And maple syrup is an excellent substitute for any Thai dish or Southeast Asian dish um, because it's got that caramel richness to it that palm sugar has as well. Yeah, I think so, it would be much more complex and satisfying, too. Exactly, exactly. And again, for the savory dishes, you know, we're just talking like a teaspoon or a tablespoon, depending upon what, what you're making. You know, a lot of times in, in an Asian sauce, there is that sweet element to uh, to a stir fry, and maple is, is really lovely in that. Now, well, now talk to, just, just give our listeners a, a, like a, just a little primer on, on the process of actually sugaring the tree. Yeah, I've, sure. It's, okay. it's smart. So, the trees are smart, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so I always um, think of them as smart to be doing that. <laughs> they're, they're smarter than we are, right? Um, yeah. So the tr- we start um, tapping the trees in January because what we're trying to do is have them all tapped before the sap starts to run. And the sap will run uh, when the daytime temperatures are above freezing and the nighttime temperatures get below freezing. Now, why so does it run? Uh, it runs because of pressure that's built up in the trees, um, and it actually draws up moisture from the ground. They used to believe that, you know, the sap was just sort of sitting in the tree waiting to to come out at the right conditions. Mm-hmm. But, in fact, it's constantly drawing up water from the from the ground as it's producing sap. So when those conditions happen, uh, the trees will start to run, and you, it'll come out um, from each tap as like a drip, drip, drip. And it comes, we, we put the tap into a tube, which leads to a bigger tube, which leads to a bigger tube, and it all ends up down at the sugar house. Um, it's all in a vacuum system. And so with 86,000 taps at the same time, like when it's really running, it comes in like a fire hose. It's pretty amazing to watch. Wow. So then what now, How many is, people do you employ? Um, in the woods, there's about 12 to 16 people during the season, uh, but mm-hmm. we now have 85 employees total. Wow. Now let's, let's, um, not, let's not forget about the other the other thing for which you're famous and which we also enjoy consuming in large quantity, and that's honey, 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 
honey. Yeah, yeah. So that is new for us this year. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Been, yeah, it's been a joy to, to learn about that um, because obviously Eric and I have a background in maple syrup, um, but I do not in honey. So we have been learning from from the experts and. I call them little honey safaris that, that Eric goes on. He, um, he has been heading out meeting with beekeepers, mostly in upstate New York. Uh, there's the winter family that we, we buy a lot of our honey from, and they've been doing it for many generations and, and definitely know their stuff. Um, we also buy some from Montana. Um, it's called the High Plains Clover Honey, and some from Florida because we wanted to get that orange, um, orange grove honey. Yeah. Um, where well, the now, bees are did you learn all about the bees? And that you you buy oh, your yeah. honey, and then what do you do with it? Uh, so when we buy the honey, we do have raw honey, which is the the orange honey, the the late summer um, um, beekeepers cut one, and then um, uh, the other one is the high plains clover. Those are the raw honeys. And then we, since you know our specialty is infusing, we also have some infused honeys. So we've got. Um, a lemon verbena one, which is really nice in your tea. Um, we do some hot honeys. My favorite, I think, is the hibiscus honey because it's, oh, yeah. all it is is just the hibiscus petals in the honey. And hibiscus has got that wonderful, like, raspberry tangy flavor to it. So yeah, it kind of like takes the edge off of the sweetness of the honey. Um, and it's really great on, like, toast or English muffins in the morning. Um, it's also nice in tea. So that, that one currently is my favorite. Now, honey, honey takes on the characteristics of the flower or whatever it is the bees have been feasting on, right? Exactly. And so that's what our orange blossom honey is. Those are hives that have been kept. Um, in fact, they're down there to pollinate the citrus groves. And so they've just been feasting on, on orange flowers and lemon flowers and grapefruit flowers. And, and it comes off with just this lovely, lovely orange undertone to it and you'd think that we put flavoring in it and it's not the case at all it's just simply <laughs> from the orange flowers the orange blossoms um now, here's, and that, here's the thing that here's terrific. the thing that always puzzles me laura have, have, when, when when you're when you're getting into the hive and you're taking stealing the honey from the bees why, <laughs> why don't they sting the heck out of you well, that's why you wear a bee suit when you do it. <laughs> um, and they also, you know, they, they have that smoke, the little smoker that they have with them. That yeah. calms the bees right. down and it and it sort of makes them stay put and less less aggressive. But most beekeepers will wear uh, a bee suit when, when they do it. You know, we um, when we were in London once, um, we stayed at this hotel that had a, um, a number of hives on the on sort of like part of the roof and um we we sort of inquired about it and um of course they used the honey in the in the restaurant um mm-hmm. but we found out that there is um a woman who we ended up interviewing who actually is a professional beekeeper um mm-hmm. and she she deals urban bees only she does all of the the, the buildings in London with hives wow. on the roof yeah, and she knows more about bees. I mean, I, I I just couldn't stop asking her questions about, you know, they do a dance and they communicate with movement and they, do you know all that stuff? I'm learning it. Um, they're yeah, fascinating it's amazing. creatures. And so we're, we, we're not, Runamuck is not keeping bees, um, no. but we're dealing with the beekeepers because it, Vermont does not supply enough honey for, for our needs. Um, right. which is why we, we went across Lake Champlain to upstate New York for it. Um, but, you know, maple syrup is extremely regional. I mean, it's got a wonderful history, but it's, a you know, about a 200-year history of maple syrup. Honey has been, you know, oh, part of forever. every single culture for centuries. And it's it's everywhere. It's worldwide. Like, every single culture has their own relationship to honey. So the mm-hmm. history of it is phenomenal, and you can – you can learn about Turkish honey and honey from Russia and honey from China right. and, and Africa. And, um, you know, so I feel like I, I have a lot ahead of me to learn about honey. And in particular, I think I'm, I can't wait to learn how each of these cultures has been using it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a part of, you know, religious festivals. And, and it's this great prize, of course, because it was pure sugar. And it, yeah, often at times when there was none. So, 
honeys. I've just scratched the surface for honey. No, I, I want to. I want to pop in something into the conversation, but then, but then I don't want to give up, give up the, uh, the the voice because I have another question after that. But one of the things we discovered when we were at, staying at the, uh, the hotel in London that I mentioned is that the the bees that a lot, a lot of the bees that were being used actually came off the flowers in the gardens of Buckingham Palace. So <laughs> That's <they> were, fun. <laughs> so so they, were, they were supplied by Her Royal Majesty. Yeah, well, there you go. Some royal honey. <laughs> royal jelly, I mean, the same thing. Um, go ahead, Robert. You had another question or comment. I forgot, I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> you forgot. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned about other kinds of sweeteners. Oh, no, no, I, no I remember. The, okay. The thing that amazed amazed us, I think, as we got as we talked to more and more people about about honey, is the place that bees have in the ecosystem, the agricultural ecosystem. Yes. And, yeah. and they're such an important part of the creation of so many of the crops that we take for granted. Very important, and and they're very threatened at the moment. Um, you know, our 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 main beekeeper over in New York has said that he used to, you know, when he 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 brings a lot of his bees down to Florida and to California um, oh, yeah. during the winter yeah, months here. But he does keep some bees in in New York, and he said he used to get about ten percent die off of his bees over the winter. I mean, you can always expect some sort of issues, and now it's more like forty percent. And it's simply, oh, it's terrible. I mean, if it gets are, broader, are we're going to... Yeah, gonna, they're weaker, and there's less food for them and more pesticides out there, and they're just weaker in general. And um, it's pretty scary um, because we do rely on them for so many of our food crops. And and also, you know, even the non-food crops. Like, it's it's important for pollinating trees and, the you know... Oh, the, yes. The propagation the almonds, of that, everything. California is the largest almond producer in the world, and mm-hmm. uh, and and it's threatening that industry because bees are how they pollinate the uh, yeah the almond yeah. trees. Yeah. So a lot of beekeepers have become very politically active um, and and environmentally active because their livelihoods are depending on it, um, and and trying to convince not only big agriculture, but even like small backyard growers to, to really think twice before using pesticides because it, it affects the bees. You know, bees, bees don't have borders. They go where they feel like going. And, um, you know, you can't keep them contained in your backyard. So when they head out, they're heading into everybody, everybody else's flowers. And, and uh, people just need to keep in mind that uh, you've got honeybees and, and, and even the non-honeybees are still important pollinators. Um, out there, and and they need to really calm down on all that pesticide there. Now, do you plan to be a producer yourselves, or are you saying no, no? We're no, probably no. not going to keep our own bees, um, but work with the with the families that we've started with. Now, talking, you talk about the history of honey, and uh, and all the different cultures involved. I mean, specifically maple syrup. I mean, mm-hmm. is that how recent is that a discovery, and how widespread is it geographically? Well, colonists, when they when they came to um, this new land, um, were taught how to make maple syrup by indigenous peoples. So, you know, given that's a uh, three hundred, four hundred years, um, you you can date it back about that far. Um, how far back indigenous peoples were doing it, we're, we don't know. But um, it's, you know, it's a very rich history in New England. Um, before yes. there was granulated sugar available up here, there was always maple syrup because, as I said, the colonists sort of learned from the indigenous people how to make it. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the grading system was um, for many years, the very light, um, light-flavored and first-of-the-season stuff was always the fancy stuff because they wanted it to be as close to granulated sugar as possible. They didn't want that maple flavor in it. They wanted it to taste like sugar from the Caribbean, which, of course, was very expensive and considered a luxury item. 
Now, of course, everybody loves, you know, the heavy maple flavor and yes. it's the, the darker syrups that people really want because they're looking for that, that rich caramel flavor to it. They don't want it to be, to be light. Um, so they changed the whole grading system. It, it's gotten a little confusing. It's all grade A now and it's grade A light, grade A medium, grade A dark. Um, so anyway, it, things have switched around a little bit, but, um, the second part of your question is it's people sugar as far south as like roughly Virginia and as far west as um, Minnesota. It's oh, yeah. you just need you need to have sugar maples and you need to have the conditions of freezing and thawing in the winter or late late winter early spring, and you'll be able to make maple syrup. You may, it makes you wonder how anybody figured out that they could get this syrup. Well, it, it is interesting. I mean, if you go up to any maple tree and, you know, if the conditions are right and you scratch the the bark of it, you'll see the sap come out. And I think if really? you taste it, there's like a, it's it's 2%, 1 to 2% sugar. So if you actually tasted that sap, it would taste mildly sweet to you. So I think it's not much of a leap to, to think like, hey, I wonder if we like put a spile in there and actually, you know, tapped this to get some of this sap out and then boiled it down, boiled off the excess water if we would get a sweet syrup, and sure enough, you, you can. And, that, and that's what you do. So part, yes. part, of the, part of the process of being a sugar is that you concentrate the, the syrup. Yes. So I, I guess I didn't finish. So when, the, um, so when the sap comes into the sugar house, we first send it through an RO, a reverse osmosis machine. Um, and what that does is remove as much water as possible a lot of, you know, like RO machines are generally used to get fresh water. <laughs> we use it for, for the opposite. We're trying to get rid of the water and keep the concentrate that's left behind. Um, and so that concentrate, we can go from roughly 1% to 2% sugar on the way up to 16. That's as high as we can get. And then it's a much more efficient process of boiling uh, the sap down to syrup. So it goes into the evaporator. It's boiled down to syrup. Uh, we filter it, and then it goes into large barrels. So for us, once they're in the barrels, they, we have a plant over in Fairfax where um, we do all of the barrel aging, infusing, bottling, and et cetera, et cetera. So that all happens at the plant in Fairfax. But the sugaring happens here at our sugar bush in, in Cambridge. Oh, wow. Well, I, I think it's amazing. There was a time when um, people just thought what they bought – and supermarkets as maple syrup was maple syrup, and and I think I became conscious of it when I needed a a, a present for one of um, out of our son's um, buddies, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 father suggested a nice jar or bottle of of, of honest to god maple syrup, and that's when I first became aware of of the difference in in quality. The mm-hmm. kind of stuff you, this, but now people understand that, that it's a different animal altogether. That the fine I, I hope pure so. maple syrup. I, yeah, I, I, thought, I, hope I thought so. I mean, these were insects, and trees, trees, trees are vegetables. <laughs> exactly. Now, well, there are two. It's let's interesting because they're both wild crafted uh, sources of of sweeteners. I mean, they're. You know, it, uh, to get maple syrup, you go off into a wild forest. Like you're not, you're not. Most of agriculture is is in a clear cut, enormous field and neat, tidy rows where it's easy to harvest. And that is definitely not the case for maple. You're you're trugging up the mountain in three feet of snow with 20 pounds on your back um, <laughs> to get it. And you know, and it's also true for for bees. Like you you have these hives, but you're dealing with a wild animal, and you're dealing with with the elements and how different every every season is, and um, you know, it's it's they're both sort of the, in their own right wild crafted foods, um, which uh-huh. we think is sort of neat. Yeah, well, I do too. I'll, 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 I'll think of you with with thirty six pounds on your back as I, <laughs> as, I, as I pour maple syrup or honey onto my granola in the morning. Exactly, promise, that promise, was hard one maple I'll, syrup. Well, we, we have. Um, one thing left to do here, but before I move to how you get it uh, and your website and stuff, uh, tell me the name is what? I mean, uh, how did you get the name? Uh, Runamuck. Oh, Runamuck? Well, <laughs> 
our name is based on the fact that our business relies on the weather, and that is just always a bad idea. And so there's always just a wee bit of chaos going on here. I mean, as I just said, you know, maple syrup is 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 produced from a forest, and we are subject to blizzards and windstorms and moose and squirrels and, you know, all, all, all manner of, of uh, wild and, and non-wild, you know, things breaking in, in the sugar house. And, and um, so we're just always kind of running amok around here. Okay. <laughs> well, I wanted to get that out. And, um, yeah, and, and do squirrels have a sweet tooth? Do they like the syrup? Oh, yeah, no, and they, oh, they are very mischievous, and they will go and they'll chew up the tubing. They're horrible. I can't stand them. They, they get, we have an Asian pear tree, and I see these little rats running around with, with the pears in their mouth. <laughs> they climb up anything, you know. Yep. So, yep, okay, how about now can you order from your website? Where? How do people get your your products so it's all available at runamuckmaple.com um and we have uh and that's spelled r-u-r-u-n-a-m-o-k maple.com dot com um and we've got recipes and and a blog about how maple syrup is made and all sorts of information and and also we're we are on facebook and instagram and twitter uh so definitely look us up on there and and like us and because uh, we <laughs> we have new content every day and we try especially during the sugaring season it's a lot of fun to follow along because we try and get as much um footage from from the woods and what people are oh, up to up wow. there and, and stuff. So it's really fun to follow along during any time between January and April. Well, Laura, thank you. It's been a delight to sample your products and to find out more about your business and, and uh, yeah, and talk to you about it. It's great. My pleasure. Well, it was success. lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Well, we're big fans. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next up, well, I can tell you that I'm so happy that we got to meet this next customer couple, um, I guess Sarah Canicio, she pronounces it, and Isaiah Billington, uh, and their products are just incredible, so is their story, and we're going to be talking to them about their Keep Well Vinegar and White Rose and Miso. Well, we we have an interesting conversation that's just started and will continue uh, with uh, Sarah Canicio and Isaiah Billington, who are hailing currently from Harrisburg, um, although that's not the whole story. Um, but we're, we're really talking about their fabulous product, Keep Well Vinegar, uh, as well as a, another product, which is White Rose Miso. So we're going to actually, I, I really like to just touch on the fact that both of you in your previous life were pastry chefs, and that's how you met. Um, how, does, how did you end up heading towards uh, fermentation and, and vinegar? Hmm. Well, Sarah, I think I'll let you take one? this, yeah. Yep. Okay, great. <laughs> so Sarah and I were pastry chefs together at a restaurant called Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore. That was uh, hugely dedicated to local sourcing. You could say that was probably, if you know anything about that restaurant, that's what you know about it. Okay. And uh, so a lot of what we, what what fell onto us and our responsibilities in that role, since we were sort of in the back doing a lot of production, was that any time that we wanted to take something that you might normally buy as a restaurant, like a dried fruit or a jam or a pickle or a fermented pickle, like a sauerkraut or a full sour, that really just became our job because we were the ones in the back with all the equipment who didn't have to run out and, and work service at 5 o'clock every night. Aha. Um, and so we really got into uh, trying to figure out how to uh, wrangle these 
processes, both in in ways that fit uh, small, tight schedules like a restaurant has, and also to make a restaurant-quality product. I don't mean to say that that's better or worse than something that's at home, but just something that's useful to uh, professional cooks and chefs. Um, and, in you know, and at the same time, we're too. still, of course, responsible for, for cranking out, you know, hundreds of desserts every night. And, uh, and, and, you know, there's only so much of that you can do before you realize that, uh, before you start to feel a little bit guilty about feeding people so much fat and sugar, you know? Um, really? <laughs> um, I wonder about that because I have a personal <laughs> trainer who happens to own the gym and her other business is a bakery. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I kind of queried that myself, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very that that's incredibly funny. smart. Uh, they call that synergy in the business world, I think. <laughs> synergy, right? <laughs> so okay, so so, but there's a long way from just being a little by over sugaring everybody. Uh, to actually deciding on producing vinegar and miso. Right. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think that we found once we were in the restaurant and realized that the you know the limit on space in terms of producing a consistent ferment product, fermented products like vinegar or miso or soy sauce or Worcestershire. Yeah. Um, really led us to say, you know, I think that this could be its own business and we might be better served, you know, really seeing how far we can go in terms of scaling this up and, you know, offering this back to restaurants because there's, you know, a real hole in the, the market at the time for a fermented product that was coming from ingredients from local farms. So we really thought. So, well, so you're also still local. You you focus on local ingredients. That's correct. Yes, we use ingredients coming from uh, the Mid Atlantic region. We use a little bit of rice from South Carolina, um, but other than that, mostly within Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, little New York. So. So yeah. what what time frame are we talking about? When did you start this uh, vinegar company? Uh, 2015, we really started, you know, we kind of, uh, got, had some ideas brewing and, and we started out kind of doing a lot more with pickled vegetables and said, okay, well, you know, it's difficult for two people to make a lot of kimchi. Uh, maybe we should go a little bit further into, um, some of these longer processes, you know, vinegar takes about a year, soy sauce takes about a year. Um, and that could allow us to sort of maintain with just the two of us and, and still produce quite a bit of product. I see. So the yeah. first thing you did was the vinegar, keep well vinegar, uh, yeah. right? And, um, yeah, and um, I'm curious about, I mean, you do have some rather unusual uh, flavorings and, and types, I call it types of vinegar. I mean, do you use yeah. a, a standard, like the, the French, whatever it's called, process, was the Orléans process for producing yep. this? Okay. And, and and the palate is endless if you're making vinegars, I've discovered. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, anything that's sugar right, uh, can become alcohol, and anything that's alcohol really just needs uh, oxygen and time to become vinegar eventually. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we did, uh, yeah, would we, you come. said time, we had, uh, we went into a phase where I was doing a lot of features um, for dailies on balsamico, and so, well, oh, yeah, yeah you're yeah, we were that's, roaming that's around Italy. Actually, we we went to one um, production plant. Somehow we got um, trapped between two lock gates, and <laughs> that's all I could think you of about the dinner. Yeah. You stayed there until there was a batch of balsamic done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's about it. Well, the, the thing that made it worse is the cab the cab driver who got us into this mess. His his phone was out of out of battery. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. 
That sounds like so a we had we, we literally had to sit there till somebody showed up in the courtyard, you know, but uh, not <laughs> quite long enough for uh, for the angel share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me let me let me tell my vinegar story. We we were interviewing a winemaker from South Africa, of all places. D- did not have COVID that we know about. Right. <laughs> but what? Wh- one one year, the, the proprietors of the vineyard said, we made no wine, we made vinegar. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> their, yeah. Their, entire, their entire production of, of of grape juice went bad and became yeah. vinegar. No, no, not bad. You know, winemakers don't like us very much because uh, <laughs> right. we, we have some friends that, that own a winery and they uh, always are like, you know, we probably have some acetic acid bacteria, you know, just kind of in a, a cloud around you. <laughs> go in the wine room. So you, you keep you out, huh? Yep. So, <laughs> now, how, how many varieties do you, you, you change your, your um, the product type regularly, huh? You know, we do our best to, uh, we we really think that it would be a sign of maturity for our company to have a a stable lineup all the time. But the problem is that just, there are too many exciting things to ferment out there. You know, we just can't resist. Um, You know, very frequently, the reason that we decide to make something is because we have this sort of small, uh, short list of growers that we really like to work with. They're farmers that we trust and, and whose methods we want to support. Uh, we think they're the very best. And, um, you know, if they call us up and say, hey, you know, uh, last year, for example, all the restaurants are closed or, or they're not ordering very much due to COVID. So we suddenly have uh, just a, uh, an endless supply of persimmon, something that that uh, that they've always wanted to sell to, to restaurants and chefs uh-huh. before us. And so, um, you know, let, let, let once I have that, as soon as somebody says that to me, like, we're making persimmon vinegar. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm right on a kick with persimmons, but I didn't get any persimmon vinegar from you. All right, well, we have a big batch coming around the bend. Yeah, sure we'll have a lot out. this year. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who to talk to about persimmons because it's a whole world of, of culture, different cultures around this particular fruit. It's very interesting. Yeah, the, and so I'm, I'm trying to do a, a piece on that. So trying to figure out who to who to actually represent the wonderful fruit. There's so many types right. of it, you know. Of American persimmons and Asian varieties. Yes. Yeah, we use no, we use no, both. Hold, yeah, hold, we use the forage ones. Go ahead. Hold on a second. Black garlic vinegar. How do you how do you? I mean, black garlic is a variety of things, but solid is one of them. <laughs> how, how do you make that into vinegar? Well, okay. So you know, uh, one thing that we'll keep coming back to, I'm sure, is is the idea that we're always just looking for sugars, right, to ferment. Now, garlic, of course, is the energy sort of warehouse for the plant, the bulb, I mean. And um, and so, you know, you don't think of, of garlic as having a lot of sugar, but, you know, it is just by weight, it's about 30% carbohydrate. The wild okay. thing about it is that they're kind of locked up, just like um, the nutrients or the energy in a seed is locked up until you sprout it or or mill it and bake it. Um, and it, and yeast has a hard time sort of digesting that sugar. So the garlic won't really ferment into a, a we'll call it a wine for now. Don't let any of your uh, winery friends get mad at us. Um, it, it, it's kind of difficult to just ferment garlic into wine. Uh, yeah. But in the process of turning garlic into black garlic, you, by giving it enough time and temperature essentially, for it to, to go through that sort of very long Meyer yeah. reaction, um, you are breaking those sugars down into into shorter, more easily digestible chains. And that's when the youth can really get at it. So, we know it's, you know, it's actually, I think it's, we, at, at the beginning of this black garlic craze, 
But we got called, I mean, that must have been the middle of the night for them in Korea. The guys mm-hmm. that found out how you could actually scale up and produce black garlic, you know, the process, they'd commercialize right, yeah. it. And uh, as a result of our featuring them, uh, they sent us what what I thought was going to be a lifetime supply of black garlic. (laughs) (laughs) And then they showed up at the fancy food show, and we got even more that year. But I think basically it's it's sweet. I think it's sweet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very. It's like uh, caramel. Mm -hmm. And you're tasting exactly what we are able to ferment into wine. And if we can make wine, we can make vinegar. So that that is exactly right. Very amazing. Sweet. Well, you know, yeah. I, chefs tend to really love that black garlic. I'm not so crazy about it for cooking myself, but chefs love it. Yeah, it's a strong flavor for sure, and it's 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 an unusual flavor. And it, I think, oftentimes, um, chefs particularly really sort of are tempted by a flavor that's both sweet and savory because that kind of lets you go into a, an interesting direction. You know, you're getting that, you know, umami, which is sort of sought after, that sort of um, flavor that's sort of indescribable, and uh, black garlic definitely has that sort of thing. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. okay, so you're you're tempted to make everything into vinegar. Could you run through just some of your interesting um, uh, types of vinegar for our listeners. Just so. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I'll break them down into sort of, of, of a family's uh, of product, I suppose. Okay. Um, you know, I think when you're thinking about sugar and you're thinking about local things, well, it's pretty easy to get really quickly to maple syrup, to oh, yeah. honey. Uh, sorghum molasses is one of our stalwart day one um, favorites. Uh, you mean you make vinegar out of that? Out yep. of sorghum molasses? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Well, don't uh, forget to let us taste that, too. I can't even imagine. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll, we'll just ask you to send, to send you the whole catalog. I think I only sent you about four or five. <laughs> I could probably find it online, but go ahead. Um, and tell uh, us more about your... So you have the sweet, the sorghum. Go ahead, maple syrup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have uh, a lot of things that are based on things on, on what you would traditionally make wine and cider out of. We all different grapes and apples, occasionally pears. Sometimes those same things paired with other fruits like uh, the persimmon. Um, and then you know a really interesting one for me I, is grain because where we are is a in my experience and in my opinion, a particularly really great area to grow wheat, emmer, farro. Um, even we've got a couple of farmers growing rice for us in Maryland and New Jersey. Well, yeah, we got the rice um, uh, vinegar, you know, which I used to stock regularly and I sort of fell away from it. It's essential for, for the ac- really accurate, authentic uh, Asian flavoring. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And Ours, ours we really are so happy with because it just has that really clean and it and it really has a nice rice flavor, which is nice. So you can it's it's one of those vinegars that I think if somebody says, Well, what do I do with it? That's that's almost the easiest one that you really can apply almost just alone onto onto your foods, onto an avocado or you know, if you're kind of like a beginner with vinegar and not quite sure what what you're able to do with vinegar rice is a great one because it's just delicious yeah but peter actually i've said to him um i mean i'm i'm not into um mixed cocktails and things like that but i i fell in love with shrubs (laughs) Mm. oh yeah but but I, I like to sip vinegar, and, and your vinegars are so clean and, and clear that it's great to sip it. Well, that, that is like music to my ears. I love to hear that because we're really hoping that, you know, they, they maintain a really high acidity. Some people are sort of surprised because they're, not, they're no longer sweet. There's nothing sweet left in them, but mm-hmm. they still kind of trick your mouth into thinking that there's 
because you recognize the flavor of the persimmon or the flavor of, you know, the ginger or the turmeric, um, you're still kind of able to enjoy them and sip them, really, if you want to. Well, I make switchel to drink. But, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But, you've, but you, have to, you have to put a f- fairly considerable amount of sugar in there. Somehow. Yeah, you do? Well, I do. It's a bit harsh for me if it doesn't have sugar in it. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it can, it can uh, we, the dentist will be worried about you. <laughs> one of, one okay, of so what else? Do you have another category? Say it again. I'm sorry. You, you were telling, walking us through categories of your vinegars. Oh, yeah. so we've got grains, fruits, and, and obvious sources of sugar like uh like honey and maple. Um, and then, you know, a, a not a, a not inconsiderable category is uh, is really roots. Roots are another great place where a lot of energy is stored. So really? we've done a lot of, um, I mean, think about a, a beet is full of sugar and, and there's a, all sorts of beet ferments, like a beet kvass or you'll see beet show up in kombucha from time to time because they do supply all that natural sugar. We haven't done a beet vinegar uh, in a while. Um, simply sort of a technological, we just don't have the, uh, it's not in our wheelhouse right now to process and juice and extract the juice from uh, any volume of beets right now. But uh, we would certainly come back to it. Carrots can certainly be very high in sugar. Garlic is a really good example. Um, and there's even... Another one that we don't make but is really great is, is something like a sweet potato vinegar. It's a what? But we do. Sweet potato. Oh, I yeah. have sweet potato. Oh, I can't. That's not the same thing. How long would it take for me to ferment sweet potatoes? Don't you, don't have, you don't have <laughs> enough sweet potatoes, but I'm sure, I'm sure you don't. Now the, sweet potato the vinegar is, a, is common in, in Japanese cuisine as well. Uh-huh. Um, now, again, just... But when you're talking about um, energy, you're really just talking about sugar, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, okay. Very good. Um, These are all interesting. Do you have something that tells us, like, um, how to use these? There's a little card that came with ours, but, I mean, it's it's not as specific as, like, how to use each of these. You know, on our website, we do we do post recipes that kind of give some standards. You know, there's basic sauces that you can make and kind of straightforward vinegar applications. Um, those sort of are cross-cultural, cross, uh, cross-cuisine, um, green sauce, you know, salsa verde or um, things like uh, vinegar chicken, poulet vinagre. Um, which is French, but also kind of you'll see, you know, an adobo uh-huh. braise of the and chicken thigh I mean, in, a, in a vinegary sauce. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a cookbook that's called Just Add Lemon because uh, Peter yeah. always asked me to taste his sauces, and, and I always say, you know, it needs some brightness from lemon, but you ought to write a cookbook about just add vinegar because you have so many different yeah. flavors. You could really get some interesting you recipes. Know, that's that's kind of what we do really work a lot on. And obviously, you know, having a pastry background, uh, the bent is often toward how can you use vinegar in baking. And on our um, Instagram, I we basically kind of post about once a week a new recipe using vinegar in a baking application, not only because baking is important to um, the chemistry of, uh, or vinegar is important to the chemistry of baking, but also because of flavor, exactly, you're exactly right. Everything needs that kind of burst of acidity, and and that really does include your baked goods, because there's some play between fat, sugar, acid, and heat, which I think there's another book called that. Uh, ends up it really is. I mean, it is. It's a very good book. I don't know if you've yes. read it or not, but it's yep. very good. She's yep. wonderful. And, yeah, and it's, it, you're exact, it, it's it's exactly 
could not be more true. It's really important to remember, you know, when you're when you're making anything, anything, including a pie, having that yes. little burst of acid is really going to focus the flavors and kind of create a better balance instead of just being all sweet or, you know, too buttery or too this or too that. Having acid really helps balance that. So it's it's truly important. And well, then we also we have a path to your other uh, product line, with, which is your white rose um, misos. Um, I mean, we know so many chefs that have food labs anymore where they make their own um, miso and, and whatnot. And we, and we interviewed a guy from Cleveland who wrote a whole book on koji. I didn't understand all the chemical stuff, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a fabulous book. Did you read that? Uh, Jeremy Umansky? What's his name again? I can't remember now. Was his name Jeremy Umansky? Mm, I think so. I'm not sure. Who was the other book? Um, Koji Alchemy? Uh, from Cleveland, or two, two people. Yeah, yeah it's likely, it's likely who you're talking about. And, and yeah, he, he's a great, great expert on the, on the field. For sure. Well, for no, for those that that don't know, tell us what miso actually is. Sarah, so, I yeah no you go for it. I like how you talk about okay. it. Okay, all right. So, miso is a preservation and fermentation process by which the the sort of the bounty of the of a seasonal harvest. Of, of staples like grains and legumes is turned into something that is delicious, uh, lasts all year round, and actually very nutritious. The, the end product of the fermentation is to take, again, complex starches like in rice and wheat, as well as proteins like in soybeans, which are uh, sort of unique among legumes in, in the density of protein uh, just sort of by weight in the bean. Uh, and it breaks those starches and proteins down, again, into sugars and then the proteins into amino acids. And mm-hmm. that, uh, <clears throat> the presence of those amino acids is why, of course, uh, is, is what we taste as umami, usually, uh, like glutamic acid, for example, which is basically just, it's chemically identical to, identical to MSG. Um, and, you know, and that's why umami is, Probably, you know, probably certainly was was first identified and found in Eastern cuisine because, of course, that's where those kinds of ferments are uh, traditionally have dominated one. So the process of making koji is almost uh, perfectly counterintuitive. Or making miso, excuse me. The first step is to make koji, and you'll usually start with the grain that uh, that will be part of your final ferment, and and. Well, many, you used Jerusalem artichokes. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, they, they just grow here, and they're sugar. awesome. <laughs> um, so, you know, in that, to make that particular miso, we'll start uh, by cooking uh, amarfaro. Um, okay. And you steam it because you don't want to lose, uh, if, if you boil it in a bunch of water, you know, you're going to lose a lot of the nutrients that are in the yeah. grain. So you you steam the grains, and then you uh, you basically grow. Uh, you inoculate it with a very specific lab set um, uh, mold spore called koji spore, koji kin, and uh, and you just you grow this fuzzy little mold all over it. And um, what you're doing there is you basically uh, the the byproduct of this mold growth is going to be the creation of a bunch of enzymes that will eventually, um, once you cook, for example, a, a bunch of soybeans and a bunch of Jerusalem artichokes and you grind it all together, those enzymes that you've created will slowly go to work and over the course of, you know, months or years, um, do that, that breakdown that I described, turning everything into um, tasty little sugars and tasty little amino acids. Well, I'll tell you, you guys must have a lot of uh, science background. <laughs> <laughs> and and I also, know, I think you have really, a lot of patience. You must have a lot I, of patience. Uh, well, 
I think that there's something really interesting that appeals to someone who likes baking and also someone who likes fermenting, and that is that eventually what it comes down to is the same process over and over in, in slightly varied ways. You know, baking is very precise, and you're using a scale and weighing things out, and when you do that, you are able to achieve consistency with your baking, hopefully. Um, and I think that making miso and making soy sauce vinegar is is a very similar thing, where if you are able to define the parameters and create kind of a selective environment for these bacteria and yeast to do their job, um, you can end up with consistency, and, and it's really very uh, rewarding. So I, I think it's similar to – I think it's really similar to baking. Once you figure now, it out, you crack the code, you end now up what, successful. What, what about Worcestershire sauce? Oh, yeah. Something you mentioned that earlier on. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, yeah. Well, so here's, so, here's so, the question. So what is Worcestershire sauce? Tell, Tell us me. again. I kind of lost somebody there. Somebody going to talk about Worcestershire sauce. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you want to, did you want to finish your question? Did I cut you off? No, I mean, I, I, sweet, sweet, I go ahead. I just re- remember earlier in the conversation. He mentioned uh, Worcestershire. So, somehow, somehow, yeah, so, uh, our guest. Equated. So the thing is, like, what is what is Worcestershire sauce? What is it made of? Secret. It's it's one of the famous closely guarded secrets. Yeah. Um, right. You know, along with the recipe to, to Coca Cola and and who you know a few other Dr. Things. Pepper. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, Dr Pepper. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, funny. You know, there are there are people who have who claim to have. Uh, found the the secret list or the recipe or whatever. And of course right. you have a general idea. You know that it's a malt vinegar base. You know that there's anchovies in there for umami. You know there's yeah, some other right. things. That's... Uh proportions, time recipe, all that. It's you know, it's <clears throat> the question is, uh if if you were to to attempt to deliver something that is that does the same thing for your palate and does the same thing for your cuisine as Worcestershire sauce. But you were going to try to um, use nothing but local ingredients to make it, uh, uh, and and su- sustainable, ecologically sustainable ingredients at that. Um, what would you do? And so we we sort of perused all of the uh, purported lists of what it was. We tasted a bunch of Worcestershire. We we were, you know, just thinking about it. We got deep into it, and and you know where. Where there were anchovies, we use a special in-house um, sort of proprietary fermented oyster instead. Where oh, we've yeah, always been supporters of oyster agriculture or aquaculture, excuse me. Um, you know, there's certainly an idea that there's sort of uh, mildly astringent and sour and puckery fruits uh, or pickles, and so we actually there's another instance of us using persimmons. We use actually. Uh, we go out and forage persimmons, and we look to get uh, a mix of really ripe, really sweet ones, and as well as some of the ones that are maybe a little younger and have a lot of that tannin left, because we really want that to show up in the final flavor. Um, okay. And 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 so we kept, you know, we just basically translated everything that that. Uh, we could reasonably assume is in is in a traditional Worcestershire sauce, and we expressed it sort of through the lens of Mid Atlantic. So, what do you call what do you call your product? <laughs> you know, we do call it Worcestershire, but we did we did fool around with a, a couple of other names. We thought of calling it Oystershire and Yorkshire because we live near York, Pennsylvania, <laughs> and <laughs> but. But we went with Worcestershire because we uh, thought that might be the most easily approachable. <laughs> oh, right. There, well, might, it, there might be a, a slightly affected name that's more accurate or more us, but sometimes you just really want to refrain from confusing people too much. <laughs> right. Well, um, give us your website because I bet you have an interesting um, um, lots of references on your website, right? We certainly do. You can see a lot of recipes. You can see um, a ton of the pictures of, of our work as well as uh, 
Uh, okay, a little bottle. keep well, right. one word, vinegar, mm-hmm. which is part of it. I always miss dot vinegar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dot com. And, and, and you can find the meso, meso information there too, huh? That is That's correct, right. yes. Okay, and, and I want to tell you that um, I think that your product is wonderful, which I think I said before, and I'm also um, very appreciative of the, the clean, inspired packaging. I, I love the, uh, the concept on, on your packages. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, thank you so that much. That is absolutely thrilling. Anne invented this dish that we used to do at cocktail parties as a sort of a before sitting down to eat, which was, what was it, consomme madrelaine. Oh, right. And uh, avocado. Avocado. uh, Yeah, I forget what I put in that. There was was something else in there as well. Caviar, avocado. Sour cream. Oh, and sour cream. Oh my gosh, perfect! That's a perfect Delicious. little palette opener. That's an ancient. <laughs> We're coming ancient next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll yeah. tell you, it would be fun to have dinner with you guys because there's so much information that you can provide, and and you, um, and and. As I said, that we're really very thrilled with the product too. So uh, I hope you could have the same kind of success that as Mr. Worcestershire. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> well, only only time will tell. We'll see if it ends up becoming a historical <laughs> importance. The point that right, I was trying to make is that we are we're exercising our patience all the time. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Did you want to say something, Robert? I, I, what, what got me around to your special dish was that I, I use the miso in in the sour cream, and it's sort of like a good substitute for for uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. I didn't know you were doing this. <laughs> com, com, comes in sturgeons. Caviar. Caviar, yeah. Yeah, it, oh, it, yeah, because it has it, that yeah. same sort of slightly funky salt. Oh, that would be good, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, we'll have to try that. Let's try that next yeah. time. We'll have to go back to 2005 and, and make those uh, those spherified caviars with a concentrated <laughs> spherified miso, miso broth. You know what else? You could put a little uh, you could put a little miso in the um, little pancake that goes underneath. What are those called? The, oh, yeah. the blini? Oh, yeah, yeah man. You could, you could do oh, look too. at us. We're writing a dinner menu party right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it starts. Well, do we have All to right. come to Harrisburg right. for that? Because I'm not so oh. sure. We, God, we were just talking about how much we want to go back to Pittsburgh. We haven't been in a year or two. We'll look right, you up. Well, it's, well, it's on, you know, by. It, okay. it's, it's a, an interesting I mean, we've had the same problem with the COVID that everybody else has had in terms of the hospitality industry. But, yeah. you know, I don't know if it'll come back or not. And we're, we're worried also about the London um, scene because everybody's back opening up. And um, we just were interviewing some restaurateurs and chefs from London. And um, if they keep opening up and then everything has to close down again, which is really bad for business. Yeah. Yeah, we're just kind of keeping our fingers crossed and doing everything we can to sort of maintain our support in the restaurant community Is with it? all the all the restaurants and everything that we work with because it's really I don't know we're pretty important to our our culture worldwide. These yes. restaurants, you know. <laughs> Exactly. Well, well you two are a delight, and, and we really um, enjoyed talking to you. And uh, Well, what a lovely uh, program you've got going on here. It was a wonderful <laughs> conversation. We're really happy that uh, we were able to connect. Well, maybe we'll talk again soon. Yeah. It seems to me you're yeah. going to probably have more products you want to promote, and you'll probably give us a, a, a message, a heads up. So thank you very much, both of you. Again, listeners, it's Keep Well Vinegars, uh, well worth your effort, and White Rose Miso, which um, in my house, Miso goes into everything. (laughs) Anyhow, thank you again. Bye-bye.
Thank you both again. Okay. All right. Bye. Have a wonderful Well, that about wraps it for today. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I hope you're all caught up with whatever holiday you're celebrating. Um, we're right on the edge of, of Christmas now. And um, I guess people are having a hard time shopping. Um, we solved that solution because we didn't shop. <laughs> so there you go. So there we go. Until, until, so, until when? Until after Christmas? Yeah. After Christmas, I'll forget, I'll forget to count the days. But anyway, it's been a delight to have this opportunity to, to present our podcast to you, and we hope you'll join us again same time, same place next week. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>